Support for WRFA is brought to you by Lost Recording Studio. Lost Recording Studio in downtown Jamestown is a full analog recording studio that provides professional recording services for both regional and national musical acts. It also serves as a live music venue for local and touring performers with a capacity of over 150 people. Also providing studio and performance space rental with a professional in-house audio engineering staff. Lost Recording Studio, located on the second floor at 106 East 2nd Street in Jamestown. For more information, call 716-338-3826. You can also find them at lostrecordingstudio.com or on Facebook. You are tuned in to Arts on Fire right here on 107.9 WRFA. I am your host, Anthony Merchant, and today on the show, it is a total honor to be talking to, honestly, one of the very first funk bass players to ever exist. And uh, that means a lot to me as a bass player. I'm talking to George Porter Jr. of the legendary band The Meters, as well as his latest group, George Porter Jr. and the Running Partners, which if you are listening to this in Jamestown, they'll be performing in downtown Jamestown next month, Thursday, July 21st at the Lost Recording Studio. You are not going to want to miss that. So let's talk touring, music, and most importantly, bass with George Porter Jr. George, how are you? Just fine, Anthony. Just fine, man. Just hanging in there, growing old gracefully, as they say. <laughs> so, you know, let's uh, let's get into it. I want to talk current to, uh, you know, start out. You know, like I said, next month you're performing here in Jamestown with uh, George Porter Jr. and Running run Partners. And uh, it looks like you got a tour going on here, like, all summer. So how long how long has this group been together? How long have you been playing with the Running Partners now? Well, the Running Partners band, uh, is, it goes back probably, um, it's, it's got to be pretty close to 35 years, I would think. Oh, my think. God. You know, I, I mean, it has been through uh, quite a few um um, configurations mainly mostly because my, my wife used to always say that my running parties was like a school you know a lot of um, musicians that went through the um through the um through the um, the porter school of music and has has moved on to starting their own bands you know like, um you know so sort of like a papa grows john grows um john grows papa grows funk um, he was in, in one of the keyboard. He was a keyboard player in the band, and the kid he, the gentleman he brought into the band to you know to be um, to be his backup keyboard. Well, actually, it was to be at one point um, uh, I, while I was out with the David Byrne too, I believe it was. Um, I, I decided to break the band up and um, and, and 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 lose the horn section because the horn section I had. Uh, Alan Toussaint took um, took Tracy Griffin, the trumpet player, and um, Harry Connick Jr. took my um, tr- um, trombone player, Mark Mullins. So you know, I, I didn't. You know, I said, "Man, I'm not gonna find nobody like those guys." You know, so I just kind of took the, the horn section and disbanded the horn section, and uh, and did it with two keyboard players, which would have been John Grow on B3 and Michael Limler on 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 piano. John Grow left the band after about four or five years, and um, Mike has been, Mike has been in the band. I think I think it's pretty close to twenty seven years now. Oh wow, that is I did not realize you uh, you guys have been around that long. I mean, that is not only is that amazing, and it's it's kind of it's it has to be kind of funny because like you know you're talking about how like you're losing your horn section and people are like taking your members and stuff, and like in a way it's like 
that's a bummer, but at the same time, for those names to be taking your players, you got to be playing with some pretty good people. I w- <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always, I've always said that you know, I've always had a, a wonderful group of players. You know that, that, that you know, it's, uh, I've been lucky. I've been lucky. Do you, uh, you know, obviously the last few years, I'm sure it's kind of, uh, you know, changed touring and stuff, but do you normally perform up this way much? Do you normally get the band up east here, uh, you know, like on a regular basis, would you say you play up this way? It's not It's not regularly, you know, I mean, since Kobe came in, it, it changed the landscape for a while, um, for a while. Um, but, um, we you know, we always played up, you know, the Northeast, you know, all, um, pretty much um you know um it's it's well i gotta say probably in the last you know 20 years or so we you know we come up there at least twice a year i kind of stay away in the in the winter time i don't come up there <laughs> up north in the winter yeah <laughs> me i don't and snow, me and snow don't get along <laughs> i don't blame you i uh i can't fault you for uh yeah playing the summer month you know what now that you say that and i was looking at your tour dates yeah you hit the east coast like at the right time i feel like you've You've mapped it and routed it the probably the right way to get out of here before it gets uh, you know terribly cold. Have you? Uh, I mean, because you do have a really nice summer tour coming up, and if I'm not like the next couple days, like by the time I'm, uh, I think like the end of this month, they actually look like you like basically hit the road for like summer into fall and basically like the rest of the year. Is this kind of like have you toured much this year yet, or is this kicking off like all your touring for twenty twenty two? This is up? this is going this is going to be. I've done I've done some short runs. So this is going to be the first um, long run that I've done in, in twice some years. You know, um, to, um, I think it was the last time I did a long run that was this long was uh, I believe it was with the government new <laughs> a few years back. Um, we might have went out for three or three or four weeks, but um, this is going to run pretty much like five weeks, uh, I believe. Um, and it's the it's the um, trombone shorties um, um, voodoo throwdown, um, and I'm actually performing with the dumpster funk band, um, playing the music of the meters. Oh, nice! So, um, so basically, uh, myself and Cyril Neville are going to be like guest artists in the in the dumpster funk band. That's you know we're going to be playing the um you know it's a forty minute set you know um and, and I think all of the bands on the on the sh- on that tour is going to do forty minutes except for maybe um the co headliner um Tank and the Bang I believe they may they may have an hour a seventy five minute set and Troy probably does two hours but um you know it's good it's going to be a, a pretty good tour I mean it's I think a total we have nineteen shows. Uh, with ten days off, uh, ten and those ten days are like you know most of them were like seven to eight. Um, so well, it's, I think there are two thirteen-hour drives, but the, most of them are usually seven to eight-hour drives. <laughs> so it's not really a day off. <laughs> no, no, not at all. That's gr- that is grueling. People don't think about it sometimes. Being in the car all day like that, that in itself is tiring. I mean, after, after that many hours, that's a rough, uh, it ain't fun. No. It's not a, it's not a day off. Um, no, it's not a day off. <laughs> are, are you ready? Like you just said, I mean, first, uh, long tour in a while for you. Do you think you're, you think you're ready for it? Are you like prepared for a long one? Are you trying not to think of, uh, you know, the five week run yet? 
I'm not, I'm not, I'm trying not to think of it. But I, you know, I'm going to take it five days at a time. You know, I mean, it's not going to be hard because, um, you know, because it's like, uh, you know, start off, I believe, this first weekend coming up. Because uh, I leave, I leave tomorrow, tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. And we're going to drive two 12-hour days to get all the way up mm. to the Hampton. And, um, but, um, um, you know, um, we're going to, we do like two days and then a day off. And then, uh, then the final day, we do three days a day off, three days a day off. You know, so, so it's pretty much kind of running like three show days a day off. And you know, three show days and day off. Now the the day the three show days are usually the short runs, you know, within two to three hour runs between and the long and the long the eight hour the seven to eight hour runs are gonna be a day, you know, the day off day that we're gonna be, you know, do the long runs. Um so you know, say so, yeah, it's 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 gonna be as different. You know, like I have I have a uh, well, I mean, it's a new van only because for two years it didn't go nowhere. I sat in my front yard. <laughs> but uh, I had a, uh, I had, a, I got a, a, a 2019 um, transit van, uh, the heavy duty, the big one. I have, um, you know, a full, um, full wheel axle on the back of it. And, Those things um, are nice. You know, and uh, and I had it custom like a Sprinter, you know, pretty much. So, I mean, I bought a, I bought a Ford just because I can go anywhere and get it fixed. <laughs> uh, it's probably good whereas, for touring. You know, yeah, whether than the Sprinters or, 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 or you know, if one of those things go down, you got to go to maybe four states over to get to somebody that can fix them. Oh, jeez. But uh, but um, you know, so that I got this vehicle. It's pretty much. I mean, it only has you know, it's it's like I said, it's 2019. It only has 36,000 miles on it. Uh, um, so you know, it's it's ready to roll. You know, I, I mean, in fact, I pu- I put it in the shop the other day. Had the oil change and rotated the tires, and you know, did all did all of the, you know, the things that you do when you're gonna go go out for a long period of time. You know. And uh, it's uh, you know it's got six captain chairs on the inside. It's only going to be four, um, three of us uh, um, to start out with, and then my girlfriend is going to join us on um, on um, you know and the New York show when we do New York, and uh, she's going to stay out with us through to Red Rocks, which is like two and a half weeks, I believe. And then she goes home, and then we'll finish off the van. But it's just basically, it's just three of us in the van, you know. And then it's pretty pretty stretched out, you know. I mean, I didn't put the television in the, in the vehicle because I didn't want to, uh, you know, when, with my guys in the van, they, they, they're big um, football, baseball. They, they look at sports, all kinds of sports. They don't care what it is. And I hate sports. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm not a yes. fan. Yeah, so I, I I didn't put the big TV, the big screen TV, in just because I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I didn't want to get outvoted on what they'll be on TV. Yeah, you already know what it's going to be. There's no getting yeah. outvoted. You already know. You're watching sports and hours of it. Yeah, probably probably good to leave that out. Not don't uh, don't blame you at all. That's great too. I mean, now you now you have that for touring too. You don't have to worry about a you know a van or renting or anything. It's, it seems like you're ready to go whenever. Uh, yeah, we we ready to rock. You know, I was offered to uh, you know to, to get on the tour, on one of the two tour buses that's going to be out, but um, I kind of you know I kind of I'm still skeptical about about that COVID thing. You know, so I didn't I didn't want to be on a bus with you know twenty. 14, 15 people, you know? Oh, yeah. Then cl- so, that close proximity? No, I feel like you're yeah. better in yours with a few people. Did you say, yeah. too, you're playing Red Rocks on this run? 
Um, yeah, Red, Red Rocks is going to be on, on probably like three weeks into the tour. Oh, that is one of the most beautiful. I have only gotten to uh, hike around there and see it, like look at look at. It. I've never gotten to experience a show there, but that is a uh, that is quite a place for a show. I'm sure. Have you ever played there before? I've, I've done yes, I've done um, several days there. I've done. I think I've done a Jimmy Buffett show there, and um, I did um, Government Mule there. And and then I did a a a, a, a friend of uh, a friend of New Orleans. Um, he was like a, 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 a he was a Tulane University um, graduate, and um, he wanted to give his dad a really great birthday present. So he he rented Red Rocks and he bought a, a, an entourage of New Orleans musicians up to um, to play, you know, like four bands or something like that, four oh, or five wow. bands. And uh, you know, and you know, for you know, he gave he gave this 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 party in Red Rocks, and in the amphitheater for his dad. You know, to about like maybe two hundred people. It was like it was amazing. You know, that is a that is the greatest birthday gift I've ever heard of. That is that is amazing. Oh my god, that is so cool. Yeah, that would be. Which I mean, we're gonna enjoy a great show here in Jamestown at a Lost Recording Studio. But yeah, Red Rocks is a uh, on my list of places I would love to see a show. So that's very cool. You'll be hitting that. I wanted, I did want to talk to you too, kind of in the uh, going with touring and playing shows and stuff like that. You know, was there a place in the early days, like going way back with the meters, like when you guys did start touring? And you know, going going outside of Louisiana and stuff, was there like a part of the country or a specific city that like you feel like embraced the band the most in the beginning? Like, was there was there a first place that seemed to kind of get it before everyone else did when you started kind of playing out? You know, I and I, I sit back, I've thought about that, you know, a few times uh, uh, over the years, and you know, I could never remember. Um, I think more than likely it must have been New York City because that was probably <laughs> one, of the, one of the few cities that we was in that we were actually there for several days. You know, we played the Apollo Theater. Oh, nice! And uh, and, and you know, so we were there, and you know, and, and it was all. Uh, uh, I think we like. I think it was like five nights, I believe. We for five. We played five nights, and all five nights were show, sold out shows. Wow. Of course, we weren't the only people on the bill. But you know, all five nights were you know was was a win, um, and um, and you know, and we did a couple of the other theaters. So we it, we like we did that theater run back then. Um, um, it was the um, the Regal Theater, uh, um, the Orange Theater. Um, where was the one? The one in Philadelphia. I can't think of the name of it. But it was like four or five of those theaters, and we you know we we did all of those theater shows, you know, and they were all multiple nights, you know, and those those nights were the you know the ones that I guess probably would have been the ones where we had a chance to play um, to a, a a multiple group of you know audiences. Uh, and pretty much all the other other nights that we, we were doing, were, they were one nighters, you know. So some nights you 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 win, and some nights you didn't, you know. <laughs> you know, like like going locally, you know, I'm talking about touring, but like locally, I would love to know too. Like, what was going on in the music scene when the meters started in New Orleans? Like, I mean, starting starting out there. I mean, was there was it a strong local music scene? I mean, did you guys were were there bands to play with, places to play? Like, was it an easy start for you guys, or what was that like in the beginning? 
You know, I I think, you know, we were just, I think we were lucky. We were just in the right place at the right time and doing what we were doing at the time. Um, we caught the eye, we caught the ear, I think maybe say say better than the eye. We caught the ear of Alan Tucson. And, you know, we, we were playing up at a club called the Nightcap at the time up on Louisiana and Carondelet. And, um, you know, Alan used to used to come in, and he, he would never come in. He never let us know that he was even there. But the club owner would always tell him, oh, your boy Alan was here tonight, you know, or something like that. And um, that was a club we were playing like three, four nights a week there. And um, so, you know, it was, you know, it was like you got to, you know, you got to stretch out. Now, I mean, at that point in time, we were pretty much a cover band. You know, we were playing a lot of New Orleans stuff. Uh, uh, music, but uh, you know, we were also playing, you know, some West Montgomery stuff. We was playing some, um, you know, um, f- the five. That, what is that? Um, people that did up, up in a way, beautiful, beautiful. You know, it was, it was the, uh, um, you know, we were doing, we were doing pretty much cover songs. You know, we were a cover band, but you know, we had a, um, we had a, a unique um, take on all that music. You know, and I think that's what caught Alan's ear. And, um, and, you know, so by the time we had moved to the Bourbon Street, you know, and he, and he heard us playing on Bourbon Street, which at that point we had grown because we had been playing together for, you know, almost four years, you know. So, you know, at that point we were tighter than he, than he heard us playing up at the nightcap. And, he, you know, he decided that he wanted to bring us into the studio and become his, his, basically his house band. Wow. That is amazing. So that, you know, that was like the beginning of the, you know, that was the start of, of our careers. And, and at the time, there were, you know, there were dozens of bands around, you know, around the city. I mean, there were bands all over. You know, there were, there was, there was tons of music. There was music everywhere. New Orleans just was always, has always been bursting at the scene for, um, you know, with, with music. It's, it's never been a shortage of music here at all, ever. You know, going, going along with that, actually, and I wonder that in places where you do have such a, you know, the music scene is so rich and it's just everywhere. Do you think it did it make it at all, though, more difficult at all to be seen with so many other bands? Like, was there was it more of a camaraderie and everyone was good or was it like, you know, because you had so many bands was harder to get shows or play out or get the attention of, uh, you know, concert goers? I, you know, I don't know, you know, because, you know, for the for the, you know, like I said, we were just lucky. We, you know, we had we had a um Basically, when once RT put that band together, uh, um, and, and I'm talking about before we were called the Meters, you know, we were we were Art Neville and the Boys at one point, and then I, and then I did change the name to uh, Art Neville and the Neville Sound Band. That, that was given to us by this jockey um, named George Burnett, and um, you know, and that was you know, it was it was never the Neville never a Neville Sound Band, which like you know, I think in one of the Neville's book it says that. You know, it was the, a lot of the brothers were playing in the band, but it, it, that never happened. You know, Aaron used to come by every now and then on a Sunday night and maybe sit in on a song or two. But um, you know, Art was the only brother in 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 a, in, a, in that Neville Sound band that um that was playing at the nightcap at the time. You know, so we had the you know there was the nightcap, and we left when we left the nightcap, we was like off for maybe two weeks, not no work. And then Art called us and said he had um, he he you know got a gig on on Bourbon Street, and we had to um, we had to do some we had to jump through some hoops because Zig was underage, 
he wasn't 18 yet, and um, they had to get work permits for him to play in the quarters. And um, but we got that, you know, and uh, and and um, and the, on the club, the guy who owned the club. You know, he was a big Art Neville fan from years and years ago. You know, um, Frank Caracci was his name. And, um, you know, so he was a big Art Neville fan. So he, I, you know, I think that he might, they might have backdoored Zig into into the club so he, he wasn't having no trouble with, with Zig being down there. And, um, you know, so, but like both times we were like residents in these clubs like when we moved to bourbon street we were playing six nights six nights a week down there wow uh, so you know and, and we were not only playing six nights a week but we were playing four nights or four sets a night oh my god so you know it was uh you know you know it was like you know it was, it was four it was four 45 minute sets every night wow that's pretty much how it, how it went we was playing opposite a guy named Jack Ziegler. <laughs> he was he was a piano just a piano player, a solo piano player, and he was singing. He sing all these in these crazy wild songs. He was you know he was he was funniest, funniest heck. You know, <laughs> I, I I used to sit and listen to his set every now and then, and just you know, he would he would be making jokes. He was the songs he'd be singing and just make jokes in the inside the song. You know, it was funny. He was funny. It was, he, he was an entertainer. You know. <laughs> You, uh, I mean, I, I assume it would. When you guys started playing, I mean, six nights a week, four 45-minute sets, I mean, did you did you see yourselves getting stronger and really kind of getting that, like, bond as a band? Oh, absolutely. Like, working, like, I feel like you have to, right, when you're playing that much? Absolutely. I mean, we, we just, you start hearing things come before they get there, you know? So, you know, you, you just, you know, you just you start, you're playing off of each other. And you know, and, and and we, you know, Ort was like the piano player, the singer. Then uh, um, he convinced the club to um, to get him an organ and put it in, in the club. But but when we first went down there, it was just a it was just a piano down there, you know. So Art, you know, he he was never a solo a piano soloist. He couldn't do, you know, he didn't, he took little solos, but not a real piano solo. You know, it takes he knew how to play piano well enough to accompany the songs that he was singing, you know. Mm. And, uh, and and he was he was more. Um, prolific on a on a on a B three, you know, and um, but you know there was it was left up to to Leo to kind of be be the the soloist for the band, you know, and um, so you know Leo and Leo Zig and myself we would we would connect really we you know we 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 played off of each other really well and we we accompanied Ortiz, you know it was it was killing, so um you know Alan I think the the idea when Alan heard us doing what we were doing behind RT, you know, he, he said that, you know, he said, man, these, these, these guys will be per- perfect to be my house band, you know? And that's how we got the call. That's amazing. That is really amazing. I want to, you know, I do want to talk to you. I, I'm a bass player and I mean, you were an amazing bassist and something that I noticed, like, you know, I mean, whether it be like the meters, I believe, uh, you know, now even in like running partners, you play with with you tend to play with one guitarist, which I feel like for for your style and your technique, I feel like that works that that seems to work the best. I feel like most bass players will will kind of agree with that. But like, 
does your role change in a band when you have more than when you start playing against more than one guitar? Like as a bass player, when you find yourself in those groups where there is more than one guitarist, do you have to change what you're doing on bass at all? Do you change your role in the band at all? Like does that dynamic of what you're doing change when you, you know, when you're adding more of uh, others at all? Well, I think my dynamic definitely changes when uh, um, when the band goes from anywhere from being just a rhythm section, a full piece band, to, to you know to when you're adding a horn section uh, and or a second guitarist, you know. Now, I mean, I've done gigs that there were three guitar players on stage, oh, so you know, I mean, so you know, musically, uh, um, when when there's when there are that many players on the stage, it's just it, 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 to answer the question about guitar players is that I just would find a part that's smaller, a smaller part to play. Uh, uh, that you know that ties you know ties all of the stuff in together. I kind of mostly I like playing more with the drummer than playing with the guitar players, you know. Uh, um, so you know I, I'll I'll just be really tight with the drummer, and um and 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 and, and, and create a pocket that those guitar players can go they can go do anything they want, you know. Because for one thing, there will always be a place to call home for them, you know, because they. You know, when I'm playing with a drummer, you know, you can you can you can bet your life there's always going to be a one. You're going to always yeah. know where one is. Yeah, it's uh, you know, well with that with that too, I I feel like the music you play. I mean, you know, going like the meters, like with funk and everything. I mean, the rhythm section is such the driving force of the songs. I mean, bass is like bass and drums. That that's the important. That's the driving force of it. So for you, like. When you're playing with drummers, when you're locking in with them and, you know, just just finding that great drummer, like what are some things you look for in a drummer that that you feel like what does a good drummer possess, in your opinion, that makes it easy for you as a bass player to lock in with and, you know, just just groove off of consistency. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like I like I I like hearing a drummer that, you know, that that plays, um, you know, that, you know, that that you know can can do things but always you know always knows that one is you know as i mean it's always important that the drummer you know uh, um you know i call drummers the guardian of the grooves you know oh, they, like they, they 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 control the pocket you know and you know and if you know if a, a, a drummer that uh, um that you know that plays outside of the pocket all the time like there's some really wonderful drummers that play outside the pocket then it, it kind of leaves it leaves somebody else in the band to be the person who's going to pronounce one and that, you know that sort of band know where one is you know um there's you know i thought i thought that um you know bands that had um, two drummers and stuff in it you know one one was always free but one was always you know was sitting in the pocket you know was creating a pocket that um you know that that uh, you know, uh, element of consistency. You know, yeah. And the other one, the other one played outside. You know. Well, actually, now, now that brings up you know something I want to ask you: if you if you have played with any bands where you do have the two drummer thing going on, and if you do, is it harder to do like you're talking about, like following along? Do you lock in with just the with one of them, or do you try locking in with both of them? No, no, I don't try locking in with both. That that's like crazy. That would be insane today. <laughs> um, no, I would, I was, I was, you know, like, in, say for instance, I did the, the, I did the first, my first double drum gig was the Mickey Hart's tour, and um, you know, and and, and he had a uh, uh, Rafael Reyes. I said, 
I think his name was Rafael, Rafael Reyes. Uh, Wilfredo Reyes, that's a wonderful, wonderful drummer. And, uh, um, you know, and he was he was really good. And he had a pocket. He, he was strong. He was very strong. And Mickey played all the stuff on the top, you know. And uh, so I, it was my job, even though I was playing, you know, mostly Grateful Dead music in that band, you know, where, you know, where the bass player in that band was, was, you know, was music in that music, I should say, was more melodic, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and I kind of leaned away from being melodic and I went for being, you know, playing simple lines and pocket notes, you know, and playing grooves, you know. So, you know, I kind of, you know, when, when I was in that, in that Mickey Hart band, I thought that the band sounded great just because, uh, um, you know, me and the drummer, um, you know, had, had, had a, a pocket, left, left a hole for all that other stuff that was going on because he had a talking drummer in, uh, uh, um, in the band too, uh, you know, one of those little percussion drummers that had... Um, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I believe it was that was He's from Africa, you know, he played, he, woo, he played that drum. God, he was like a little talking drum, I believe it's called, you know. Oh, that is cool. And, uh, and 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 then with Mickey playing all the all the all the stuff, his you know his percussion setup is serious. <laughs> do you uh in, in your uh, bass rig? I mean, is there any? Do you have any like old trusty pieces in there? Like whether it be a certain bass or an amp or something that's just like something you always got to record with or always perform with. Is there? Is, do you have like one piece of equipment that just you kind of favor over the others and just gets used for everything? No, no, I don't. I, I mean, I've been I've been using an Aguilar rig for probably the last eight years or so, like that. When I got introduced into it, um, I had been playing um, for years um, uh, MPEG uh, um, um, amps um, forever, and um, you know, before MPEG, I, I was playing Fender amps. So you know, I, I kind of went through what was considered, you know, the top of the the best bass amp at the time. You know, uh, when, in 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 the '60s, Fender uh, Fender seemed to be the uh, the affordable bass amp that was you know that was making the rounds in our neighborhood. I mean, I remember companies like PV came out, and there was some other things. Um, um, I think it was a Mesa bass amp came out back then in the late '60s. Um, but Fender seemed to be the most consistent. You can find them anywhere you go. So you know, I I, I kind of stuck with Fender for a while. And I remember playing a gig one night. Uh, oh, I remember what came out. Galleon Cougar came out, oh, and yeah. um, and 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 those that company gave me a head, gave me a, a head, and we used to take a fly to head, and we would fly dates, and you know we would rent, you know, uh, 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 you know the house would have, you know, tended the house would have a a base cabinet, and um, and we played, we was, we played St. Louis, and um. And you know, I had my head on a on a on a on an MPEG bottom, and and just so happened Ted Cornbloom and a couple of the guys that worked inside of, uh, worked for MPEG came to the show that night, and uh, and and you know, at the end of the night, Ted came over and told me, introduced himself, you know, and told me, and uh, you know, said that you know his his father was you know was MPEG. <laughs> I said, oh wow, cool man. He said. She said, "I." Uh, so Ted, Ted said, "Man, I like the way your rig sounded, man." I, 
He said, but man, you should hear that, that cabinet with an MPEG head on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and um, so a, a few months later, they did a, they did the, um, the, the thing is called a NAM show or something like that. Oh, and, yeah. um, and they, they did it up in, um, in, in somewhere in Tennessee. I can't remember exactly where it was. And uh, he called me up and he said, man, um, I, I, I got a gig for your band. Come on up. And um, he asked me what kind of rigs that I would I like, you know, and I, 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 you know, I told him what I wanted. And uh, so he set up uh, um, his, um, you know, his um, MPEG um, rig for me. It was a six by 10 box, not the eight by 10, but a six by 10 box with the, uh, with the pro full head, uh, pro full head on it. And man, that rig sounded so good. Boy, I, said, I said, whoa, I think this is me. He gave me that rig, you know, and then for the next, you know, probably the next 15 years or so um, that I used, I used that, you know, and I eventually uh, got a, um, when I was out with government mule, um, Mule, no, it wasn't Governor Mule. Who was that? Because they sent me, oh, it's Johnson Schofield. I can't remember who that was. But MPEG sent me out with a, um, with a, um, yeah, it was Governor Mule. Um, they sent me out a base rig, uh, an 8 by 10 box, and they sent me out with two, they sent two heads, um, two um, pro four heads. So at the end of the tour, you know, the, um, the the tour manager say, what you want to do with these things? I say, well, I'm assuming that, they, you know, send them back to Impact. And, and you know, um, I went home. I caught a plane and went home. And about a week later, man, you know, <laughs> that big cabinet and, and, and those two heads arrived at my house. You know, I say, <laughs> whoa. So Ted, Ted, you know, Ted, the, the tour manager said, no, the Impact said they didn't want them back as yours. So they just sent them to me. Oh man, that is amazing. That that's not a bad uh not a bad little gift at all. Nice little No, no, it gift. was it was it was it was great. But they seen like but you know if you if you know what the Pro Four head was like, I mean it was just as heavier uh, heavy as that as that old MPEG big head, that big the the classic MPEG head. Those things are heavy. You know, that things are heavy and there's that Pro Four is just as heavy as that thing, you know. So, and, you know, I got, you know, at the time I didn't have a rodeo. I was doing my own rodeo. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was like when I heard about, the, or my, it was a, a, it was a, a booking agency, a booking agent that, um, a, a guy, um, 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 my, Micah Davidson, Micah, um, told me, he said, man, we got some friends up in New York that, that starting our, our amp company that um, we need to turn you on to because he know he heard me complaining about that about <laughs> that rig is. and you know he, and he uh, turned me on to the, um, the guys at Agrilaw and um, man you know it was, I, I was up there and had a couple of days off and I went over to their office and stuff and playing on their rigs it sounded great I thought but, but what sold me was the fact that I could pick that head up with two fingers <laughs> 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 wow, there's a, I got a 500 watt amplifier here, you know, that, you know, I can pick up with two fingers, you know, I won't even break it. my back picking this up. Yeah. So you know, I was, that's, that sold me, you know, and the truth of it is, is that I, I believe that I can play, you know, I, if, you know, once you know what a head can do, 
you know, you you can you can develop how you you know the sound you want from that from that head and that cabinet by not taxing it. You know, if you know you know what what you can't do with a you know with a, with a certain rig. You know, so so I mean, I'm always been happy no matter which rigs I get. I mean, I think I just my choices have gone from one rig to a heavier rig to a lighter rig is just had to do with you know my age <laughs> <laughs> oh i can't i mean anyone who's, who's picked those up i think they feel your pain i mean they if you've messed with those amp eggs yeah they ain't light that uh you would no, not you would not, not blame all. you at all for for switching over to something lighter for uh you know for your live rig now i mean do you have any uh bass pedals in there you playing any uh pedals live I use I use three um, three you know, EBS pedals. Uh, um, it's a, uh, a envelope filter, um, and an octava, and a chorus. And 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 each one of the pedals uh, are, are, are like are, are like they have three different um, phases that you know to get different sounds, uh, and they're all adjustable. Um, so you know, I, I use the the um, the chorus because the one the chorus pedal has the flanger sound on it, and uh, and it has like a combination of the flanger and and the chorus. Because I use it like in the middle and use just the just the chorus pedal, and the octave. Uh, you know, that's uh, you know that's the octave is what it is. You know, I, I kind of set it to one thing. I don't never change it. And and also the envelope filter, I never changed that. You know, it's it's almost like the um the original neutron. You remember those neutrons? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know that first, that first, that first, you know that, that oh, pop. Yeah. You know that that at one time was taking out um fifteen inch speakers. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! No, I I could uh I mean I could I could talk bass with you forever. I love hearing the ins and outs of things like that. But, uh, you know, as we as we close up here, I do want to get into, uh, you know, real quick. So so people who come check out the show and everything, I mean, uh, George Porter Jr. and Running Partners did put out you put out a new record last year, Crying for Hope. And uh, we'll also play something off that here uh, after the interview. But I want to talk about it for a second. Also, something people should go check out prior to the performance, kind of hear what you're uh, up to right now. But let's get into like recording the album. Where where was this album recorded at? Well, it was recorded in four different studios. Um, we, um, we, it was a Pro Tools session that, um, um, that we, uh, I started the record, um, you know, here in my home studio. And then, then COVID hit. And, uh, you know, so it kind of like everybody, you know, we just, everybody stayed away from each other. And, uh, and just one day, man, I just, I, you know, I said, man, I was talking to my keyboard player, Mike Limler. Who who is like the um, he's like the um, the upper classman of the of the technical end of ours of what I do in Pro Tools. He knows he knows Pro Tools much better than I do. And I talked to him about. I said, man, you know, a couple of years ago we purchased this Pro Tools cloud thing, and, but it never you know it didn't get you know it, it never really got perfected. So, you know, I said, man, let's, let's see if we can try and use that and keep working while we're doing while everybody's in different places. So um, we tried that and it kind of failed the couple, first couple of weeks, you know, and then I think I think uh, um, Abbott got aware that, man, more people are trying to use this device. I mean, this cloud session thing. So they up, they know they made they just made their cloud, their, their cloud uh, um 
I don't know what you call it, the cloud storage space. Oh yeah. Better. You know, it made it just made it heavier, uh, heavier yeah. duty that can that it can work and it can handle the workload. And you know, after about two weeks, man, this stuff started flying crazy. Like, man, it was like, man, we were getting, we were doing real time session and stuff. You know, so it was like, okay. So then, so Mike had his studio at his house. Chris had the guitar player had his studio at his house, and Terrence was the only one that didn't have a studio. So, but we would, we would, Mike would lay it out a, a, a loop. Uh, you know, I would write the song at home, and then I was, I would upload it to, to Mike, and he would, you know, he would spell it out and send it back to him and say, "This is, is this what you're thinking about?" You know, and, and then I'll make little tweaks, and then you know, and I say, "No, this is what I'm thinking about," and he'll move stuff around and stuff. And once we, me and him agreed upon where, you know, how I wanted the song to go down, then we would invite Chris, the guitarist, into the session. And Chris would come into the session and he would put parts on, you know, and I would make pauses. And there was some, you know, a couple of songs on that record that I, you know, I wrote for Chris with Chris in mind. You know, I gave I gave him a I gave him a melody, you know, and I say, now you didn't know you, this this is what my thoughts are. Now you make it yours, you know, you make it you, you know. And um and, and we you know he, he you know he he's a wonderful player you know and uh, that's what happened so we we pretty much laid the whole session out and once we once we had done all of our recording the overdubbing and stuff then we would send the tracks to Terrence and Terrence would go to his friend's house you know and and he would overdub drums but he would be overdubbing his drums to a completed song you know so he heard. All of those, all the little insynchronies that we, you know, the little things that the little, the little notches and the little nudges that we would do. He would play, he'd play all that stuff, you know, because he, he hears it's already laid out, you know. Like, I mean, being able to record that way, you know, like someone, someone for you has just been around for as long as you have and seen all the changes in recording technology and how things get recorded. I mean, do you ever take a step back and does that ever blow your mind to look at how you can make an album like you just made an album, whereas compared to you definitely couldn't do that, say, like in the early 70s, there would be no way to make a record that way, I would say. Like, does that yeah, ever blow absolutely. your mind? I mean, probably in the in, in, in the late eighties or you know early nineties, there was probably not a way to make the you know make a record that didn't sound like it was overdubbed, you know. Yeah, yeah. you know, because you know, I mean, for the most part, we were working in real time, just in different places. That that seems like it was smooth. I mean, outside of you know the beginning, it sounded like you had a little bump, which you're you're gonna probably for doing something like that. But the rest of it sounds like it was pretty smooth. Like the rest of the process doesn't sound that bad. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, when I listen to the record, it doesn't sound like it was done in four different places. <laughs> did you guys have, so since you were doing it that way, did you have like a, uh, you know, like a producer at all? Or was this like just self-produced, self-recorded and everything? It's, it's self-produced, yeah. We we produced, our, we produced it ourselves, you know, and, you know, and probably Mike and myself had, you know, had more hands-on than anybody else. You know, so I mean, at the end of at the end of the, the day, you know, all the tunes that um that I wrote, you know, I just gave I credited to everybody in the band with you know what you know what the, the writers of the songs, you know. Nice. So it was just sitting there, you know, it was like you know, man, we we all in here together, you know. That's 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 everybody get a piece. <laughs> How long did it uh, take to record? Um, 
I think five weeks we might have might have have have. have I think in five weeks we had given it to the drummer to do his stuff, you know, and he and he knocks his stuff. He would knock out two, three tracks a day, you know. Oh, nice! He knew what he was doing. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> oh, messing yeah. around. Jeez, well that is that is awesome. I mean, definitely if people have not listened to that yet, check it out because I'm sure you'll. Uh, I'm sure some of those songs will make it into the set list here on this uh, summer. Oh yeah, tour. Um, well actually, there's only three songs in the list that um <laughs> that is not being played. Um, and, 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 and Chris made me promise that while I'm out on this tour with Shorty, that I would learn the, um, Spanish, um, Spanish more, um, Spanish, I think it's Spanish moon or Spanish Morse or something. I can't think of the name of it, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a tune that I wrote, uh, um, that my intentions was, uh, I wrote the part on bass and then the, my, my intentions was that I wanted Chris to double stop that part. You know, play it with double stops, and um, and you know when he when he got the part after you know when Michael had laid the track out, we gave it to Chris and said, okay, man, I want you to play what I'm playing in double, but in double stops, you know, and he um he, he man he played that he put it on this double stops man and and then you know and so I told Mike I said man we need to take that take away my bass line you know that my bass part. And, you know, and it's just going to be, you know, Chris's double stops. And, man, they, both of them said, no, man, we got to keep that bass line. <laughs> that, that bass line is the thing, man. That's, you know, I said, what you mean? <laughs> you know, so now I got to go learn that bass line. <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you, that kind of brings up a, uh, a, a question I didn't think of before, but, I mean, do you do a lot of songs you write start on bass? Are you someone who writes like song? You know, obviously you write your bass lines, but do a lot of your ideas start on bass? Do a lot of songs start there? Yes, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, you know, while we were doing the session, there was there were parts. You know, when I was when I originally started the session, you know, some of the recorded some of the songs had been recorded. You know, um, you know, almost eight nine months earlier when the, when we when we, when we were able to get in the studio. Then the guitar player at that time, uh, Brent Anderson, quit the band. So then I just, I just, um, you know, shelved the, the project and didn't fool with it no more. Then I thought about it, you know, um, you know, after COVID came around, I said, maybe, and I told Mike, I said, man, we need to revisit some of these tracks, you know. And uh, he said, sure, you know, and, we, and what we're going to do is just change Brent's parts and, and put, put Chris and, 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 you know, and have Chris reinterpret, you know, what, the, uh, what Brent had done. And uh, uh, and 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 we were doing that, and while we were doing that, every morning, Vicky, my dog, you know, she she wakes me up every morning, like about six forty-five. She wants to go out, so um, so when I would get up in the morning, I let her out. I would have my acoustic guitar would sit by the sofa downstairs, and I would just pick up my guitar and play on it, you know, while I'm waiting for her to come back in. And uh, so I started realizing, man, you know, I'm, I'm liking some of this stuff I'm doing down here with this acoustic bass. So I, thought, I took my phone and started putting it on voice record, and I just record the parts, you know, and, you know, and then lay down and, and then I go back to bed. You know, when I wake up <laughs> around 1, around, you know, around 10 or 11 o'clock later that day, you know, I would take the, what I did, go upstairs and, and download the, the voice, the phone thing into the, into the program, to Pro Tools, 
And then, you know, and say, say, if there's something worth visiting, you know, and then I say, oh, I like this. Yeah. And I just, I'll send that to Mike. So what happened is, you know, because there was there originally there's like 12 songs in the original session. We only used, I think, five of those 12 songs because um, I wrote six brand new songs. Wow. You know, every, every, every morning, every morning I would write a new song when the, when the dog go out. <laughs> Jeez, that is amazing. That's like half the record. Man, that is, yeah. Wow. That is that is awesome. Yeah, I mean, if people have not, uh, again, crying for hope, it is out now for people to check out, and you should definitely go listen to it because you're going to be hearing those songs at that uh, performance here at a Lost Recording Studio on July 21st. So, uh, George, you know, as we as we close out here, where can uh you know where can we stay connected with you? Where can we find your music online? Where can we find you? Where to go? Where do people go find stuff out about you? Where do we stay connected with you? Well, I think that um, um, I, I I know I have someone that that maintains a, a Instagram account for me and, and updates that that thing from the guy named Johnny Ray. He's really good people. Uh, takes that. Uh, um, my Facebook page, um, but yeah, I have a I have a Facebook page and I have a, a fan page. Uh, I think they're both under either George, both of them are under George Porter Jr. You know, so, and then there's a few of them out there. There's a few bogus pages that um, you know, that's you know, got my name on it. But you know, you always know my stuff because it's you know, it's um, it's real. And when people may, you know message me through those sites, I I respond. You know, so nice. So find you. You can find you online. You can find your music there. And uh, again, if you're listening in the Jamestown area. Thursday, July 21st, playing at Lost Recording Studio. I'll definitely be there. We're in for a good show. Great talking to George Porter Jr. We're going to play you some music now from him, and we'll start off with the title track off that record. Here is Crying for Hope right here on Arts on Fire. 